don't you turn to Romans chapter uh, chapter 12 with me? Um, we've gone through Romans uh, this year in a couple of phases or a couple of um, stages. The first one was to go through the first eight chapters of Romans that dealt with what I'll call the theology of Romans. And Paul had laid out God's redemptive plan. And really, if you, if you think about the book of Romans in terms of like academics, Romans would be Paul's thesis for like his doctorate degree. Um, it's the gospel spelled out in great detail. Everything from the beginning with the condemnation of man because of our sin to God's wrath because of that, to God's plan of redemption and Him offering forgiveness and grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, the birth, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we have that spelled out in the first eight chapters. If you want to understand the Gospel, that's where you go. You will not find a a better treatment of the Gospel by anybody um, than Paul's treatise here. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11... Paul dealt with, well, what happens to Israel? Because the gospel sort of introduced something new, if you will. Salvation has always been by grace. It's always been a gift of God, even to the Jews in the Old Testament. The Jews were not saved through the law. They weren't saved by the Old Testament rules or regulation. They weren't saved by their religion. It has always been a free gift of God. But in terms of exactly how that would be worked out, God has gently revealed that slowly over time, giving more and more details. We have the prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah that would save men from their sins, that it would be God in the flesh. Those things are, I will say, hinted at in the Old Testament. But King David, for instance, simply knew that there would be a seed of some kind that would save. Didn't know that his name would be Jesus and he'd walk for you know 30 years on this earth and be crucified. Um, so, it would, in some respects, after spelling out the gospel in the first eight chapters, Paul naturally leads then into, well, what about the Jews? How does, that, how does, that fit, how does all this fit into God's redemptive plan? And we saw in chapters 9, 10, and 11 this beautiful picture of how God is still going to save Israel. And he's going to save Israel in the same way that he saved the Gentiles. But the Gentiles are going to be grafted in that Israel has been a part of God's redemptive plan throughout all of history. And it's through that avenue, through Israel, that all of us will be saved. Because we're the branches, we're the adopted children as Gentiles that get grafted into Israel. And so in order for us to be saved, what does God have to do with Israel? He has to save Israel. And so it was this amazing picture of the gospel through God's redemptive plan with, with Israel and then with the Gentiles. And then we took a break, and we've come into the third section now of, of the book of Romans, which is the practical application section. It's where God or where Paul moves from theology to now practice. What do you do with that? And what's interesting about this passage is that everything from this day now forward into the end of the book is all going to be a response to what he did in the first eight chapters and then the next three chapters. In other words, what he shared in the gospel demands a response now by us. And so this is the practical application. This is how we walk out the gospel. This is how we now honor God because of what he's done. So I want you to turn to chapter 12 with me. We're going to look at just the first eight verses. I'm going to read those for you, and then we're going to go in and digest them. So Romans chapter 12... I'm reading from the New American Standard. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each man a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to proportion of his faith, if service in the serving, or in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We'll go ahead and we'll stop there. Let's go ahead and digest this. I believe that the main charge for chapters 12, 13, 14, and part of chapter 15 all happen right here in the first verse of the book of Romans. Actually, the first two verses. That the main charge is going to give us one overarching command that will apply to everything from this point forward. And it's really compromised of two commands. I call it a charge, but there's two primary commands in this. Everything else in chapters 12, 13, and 14 is a description of what it looks like to carry out these two commands that he's going to give us now in chapter 12. I want you to look at something, though. Look at Romans chapter 11. Just a few verses at the end of chapter 11, right before Paul starts chapter 12, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the way Paul ends his discussion of the gospel, and what God is going to do with Israel. He's euphoric in those last few verses. You, you might see the exclamation points at the end of those sentences. There's a reason for that. Paul is almost euphoric as he looks at the gospel, looks at what God's plan is for Israel. He can no longer contain himself and begins to praise God as a result. But then the very next thing he does in verse 12 is he says, Therefore I urge you. In other words, what he's about to challenge us with is a response to the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God in the gospel. He's saying, because of this, we have nothing else to do except respond in a certain way. And that's what he tells us to do here. So what, are, what is this charge that he gives us? The first command is found in verse 1. Paul calls on his readers, and us as well, to present our bodies as sacrifices to God. Did you catch that? Look at verse 1 again. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, I call this a command. Paul does not use what's called the Greek imperative here, which means it's not technically a command. However, it carries the weight of a command. He uses the word urge. In other words, it's much like when you look at your kids and say, will you please wash the dishes? That's um, called the optative mood, by the way. It's expressing a wish, but it carries the weight of a command, doesn't it? Because if I say, will you wash the dishes? And they just sit there and continue to play the Wii. Really? And I go, did I not ask you to wash the dishes? Now imagine how I would respond if they said, oh, we thought it was the optative, not an imperative, Dad. We thought that was a wish or a desire. We didn't realize you were commanding us. Yeah. So, this is to be treated as a command. Okay? I urge you. 
His appeal, he says, is based on the mercies of God. What's interesting is the NIV probably gets this translation right out of all the translations. The NIV says this, in view of God's mercy, in other words, if you look at your NIV translation, it says, I urge you in view of God's mercies. That's a little bit different than what the NASB does. The NASB makes it sound like Paul is urging us by the mercies of God, but he's not really urging us by the mercies of God. He's saying, in light of, or because of God's mercies, I now urge you. So the NIV does a great job of translating this particular Greek text. Because it really captures the idea that Paul is saying, look, it's because of God's mercies, it's because of everything I've just said, it's because of what I just said in these last three verses about the awesomeness of God, that I now have to encourage you and urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Because we owe that to God. And so again, I love the way the NIV, sometimes the NIV is a little bit looser in its translation because it tries to capture the thoughts, not sort of a literal word for word, and I usually prefer something like a New American Standard or an ESV because it's more technically correct. But the NIV, like I said, does a great job with this here in capturing what's intended. And so Paul basically says, I urge you to present your bodies as sacrifices. Bodies here should be understood as our lives. In other words, he's using the concept of bodies there to represent our lives as a whole. What we do, how we behave. the thing. He's not literally meaning just our bodies. But he has in mind Old Testament sacrifices in the background and some of the pagan sacrifices of his, of his day. The difference with those is that they were dead sacrifices. He says, here, present your bodies as living sacrifices. It stands in opposition to the dead, lifeless sacrifices of the Old Testament and those of the pagans. He says here that, that we should do it as a holy sacrifice, which means it should be set apart, unique, different In fact, that word carries the idea of being set apart for religious purposes for God very specifically. But he goes on, he says that we should present this living sacrifice, our our lives as sacrifices, acceptable to God. What's interesting about this word acceptable, it's only used nine times in the New Testament. Every single time, with the exception of one, it refers to something that's acceptable to God himself. You pack all that together, and what Paul basically says here is that We are to present ourselves, our lives as a whole, to God as this living sacrifice that is holy and something that God looks at with total, complete acceptance and satisfaction. He says in the rest of that verse that this is our spiritual act of service. This is another place where the NIV does a wonderful job of translating this because the actual idea behind the word that's reflected here as spiritual isn't really spiritual. It's the idea of truth or genuineness. So it's a little intriguing why so many of the translations translate it as something like spiritual because the NIV does a better job and it says this is your true and proper worship. What Paul is saying here is that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices as a genuine form of worship. Again, it's in contrast to this, this, I'll call it, empty worship of slaughtering animals and putting them on an altar dead and it basically being meaningless. It's the trap the Jews had run into. It's this empty religious practice that has no genuine value to it. That's why God in the Old Testament says, I don't desire your sacrifices. He was fed up with their sacrifices because they were dead. There was no, they, they, they weren't doing it from the heart. And so Paul here, and like I said, the NIV does a great job of translating this. This is your true, your genuine form of worship. This is how you worship God. You respond to the gospel. All that God has done 
and you present your lives now as this acceptable sacrifice to the God. It's a response to the gospel. That's what worship is. It's not what we do here on Sunday mornings, folks. You know, um, Brian Johnson used to, when we would talk about our worship time in our service, he used to just, he hated that. I think he was probably right. He's like, that's not, just, that's not worship. It's a part of worship. But to say, well, that's our, we're, our singing time is our worship. No, that's, that's part of it. Your lives are your form of worship. What you do from the moment you wake up till the time you go to bed. And Paul said, all of that ought to be a response to what God has done. Can you see why he was so euphoric at the end of those chapters? As he ends chapter 11, he said the only response we can have is now present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God as something that he finds acceptable, that's set apart to him. Paul's second command is actually found in verse 2. He says this, Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, or your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. So the first command, if you will, was to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. The second now tells us the how. These two commands are linked so closely together you can't pull them apart. It's not like he's telling us to do two things. He's saying, do one thing. Present yourselves by being transformed. And so the the charge here is this, that we would be transformed, not conformed. The word for conformed here means to be shaped or formed into something. It's like taking your hands. How many of you guys ever remember playing with silly putty? Some of the older adults as kids. You know, you play, you form it. Kids, uh, older kids have played with clay and play-doh. You can form it and shape it. And, but you know what? It's always play-doh, right? No matter what you do with it, no matter what shape you put it into, it's always play-doh. That's the word that's used here. He says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be shaped into what the world wants. But rather, he says, be transformed. The word for transformed here means to be changed. He doesn't want us to stay Plato. Right? It's used four times in the New Testament. Twice refers to Christ's transfiguration. And then two times it refers to us being transformed in the likeness of Christ. It is a supernatural process where our lives are now replaced, if you will, by the life of Christ. It's a transaction, an exchange that takes place. 1 Corinthians tells us that we have been changed, that we are new creations in Christ. And Paul says that's to take place, but he's talking very specifically about one part of us here. Notice he says, by the renewing of our mind. By the renewing of our mind. So we are to be transformed by something that takes place up here. To renew means to make something new and different. In order to be transformed, we need to have our minds changed, which means we have to have a new and different way of thinking. One of the things that drives me batty is when I hear people say doctrine's not important, that God doesn't care about doctrine. It means they don't understand how change happens. If you don't understand doctrine, if you don't understand God's theology, then there is no hope. Nothing changes. You can't get saved. You can't walk in a way that honors Him. When you think about what the Scriptures does, we look at Psalm 119, and it says that Psalm 119, in Psalm 119, it tells us that the Word can change the mind, it can convict the heart, it can make things new, it can give light to the eyes. We're told that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by what? The Word of God. 
That's the tool that God uses to transform us and to change us. By changing the way that we think about things, it changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we behave. You know, we have an interesting situation. I won't go into details here. I've shared with a couple of you about something that happened last night where somebody came into our home. Um, We weren't there, but we have to figure out now how to deal with that. And so as Amy and I have talked, the person desperately needs Christ. So how... We could reach out in vengeance. Somebody come into our house! But a transformed, renewed mind says, what's the bigger picture here? Somebody needs Christ. Okay? That doesn't happen without a transformed mind. Because it upsets me terribly that somebody came into my house. But a transformed mind says, look at the bigger picture. You guys can pray about that. Give us wisdom on how to handle it. So he says we're supposed to be transformed, not conformed, which means that we have, a, we, we have something going on right now. When we are saved through the gospel, we have a choice. We either say, I'm going to allow the world to continue to shape me and to conform me into its image, or I'm going to allow God to transform me by changing my mind in the way that I think so that I might think the thoughts of Christ. That's the dilemma that sits before us. And so what Paul actually does with that is he says that by doing that, by allowing that to happen, we become new creations in Christ. We change our way of thinking. We're able to put off, as he says in Ephesians 4, we put off the old man. He says by putting on the new man... By a renewing of our mind, that's worship. That's how we worship God. Looking at the gospel and saying, oh my gosh, look at what he has done. The only thing I can do now is give him my life as a living sacrifice, allowing him to change the way that I think, the way that I behave, the way that I act, that it might reflect him. And that is something that is acceptable to him, Paul says. That's true worship. That's the charge. Everything else from here on out that we talk about, including this morning, is Paul's way of saying, here's some ways you can put feet to this. Here's some ways you can work that out. And he's going to do it through a number of things. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts and how we use those within the church. He's going to talk about how we love one another and what genuine love is. He's going to talk about blessing those people who persecute us. And there the focus is on within the church. Meaning, when somebody doesn't treat you properly in the church, how are you going to respond? He's going to talk to us about submission one to another. He's going to talk a little bit about submission to government and the role of authority in our lives. But he's going to talk about how we submit to one another within the church family as well. He's going to go on and he's going to talk about um, how to accept one another. Stronger accepting the weaker. Weaker not judging the stronger. And so almost everything that he's going to focus on from this point out in terms of how to, wear, how to wear this that we just addressed, he's going to focus on interpersonal relationships within the church. Okay? But the underlying theme of that is, um, as we think about unity and how we get along as a body here, that's going to reflect this form of worship that Paul's talking about, how we live our lives. And I think maybe the reason he addresses this specifically is because within this early church there was a mix of Jews and Gentiles and there were obviously differences of opinions and thoughts which caused some tension. And so Paul, as he's thinking about their response to the gospel and living out themselves as this sacrifice, one of the first things that comes to mind to him probably is they got to get this fixed in their church family. 
So he's going to give some instructions on how to live that worship out, if you will, in something that was very important to him because of the tension that was within that early church. It'll apply to us in many different ways. You'll have to take this outside of the church as well. But let's go ahead and talk about some of these things. The first thing we're going to talk about is this idea of the spiritual gifts and why Paul addresses that here in this text. One way that we can lead a transformed life is by having a proper view of ourselves within the body of Christ. If you look at verses 3 through 8, Paul starts with this. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. He's going to move into this discussion of the body, but you notice how he starts that off. He mentions that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. You know, the world's way of thinking and behaving is often to think of yourself as better than the others. You know, it's interesting with the whole social media frenzy. It's something I didn't grow up with. You know, bullying happened face-to-face in school. And maybe gossip behind backs, where maybe you discover that a friend of yours has been spreading things about you that's untrue, you know. But man, this stuff today, it's right out in front of us. And you can see through social media, you even watch the regular media today, and there's this constant one-upmanship. Beating people up, tearing others down, I'm better than you, whatever it is, you know. Um, we've talked about that even with, with the kids in their swimming, you know, that it isn't about being, you know, better, faster than anybody else. It's getting better yourself and improving your times. Now, yes, granted, you love the fact that if you get in a race and you're the first to hit the wall, fantastic, you know. But this idea of berating others and tearing down others or this idea that it's all about being the best all the time, it just doesn't work in Christendom because God doesn't call us to that. It's okay to be to want to be the best, but not at the expense of being arrogant and proud and boastful. We all know that. There are certain athletes that you look at and you kind of go, oh, good grief, you know? So Paul is going to challenge them, but especially as it comes to how we respond within the family of God. One of the ways he's going to do that is he's going to talk about their spiritual gifts and why, they're, why and how they're used. Notice he says here in verse 3, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself. That means to be proud or to be boastful. But to think as to have sound judgment. The NIV translates this as to think with sober discernment or judgment. Uh, Other translations say it's to think sensibly. In other words, we're to think of ourselves in a reasonable, sound way that ultimately aligns with a very simple biblical truth. And that biblical truth is this, that God has given each believer spiritual gifts and a function and a place within the body to be used. What's interesting about this early church is if you go back to the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, they fought over gifts. The issue was they were pursuing these popular, fancy, way out there gifts, things that made them look good, speaking in tongues, performing miracles. They liked all the flashy gifts, and they were basically... I'll say berating the lesser gifts. And so Paul spends three chapters, three chapters, working them through that. And he makes it really clear. He starts off by saying, look, every gift is given for the benefit of the body. It's not yours. It's not to make you look good. It's not for your, not for your benefit. It's for the benefit of the body. Then he goes on and he discusses with them by saying, look, really you ought to pay attention to those lesser gifts, those more modest gifts. And so, 
there was some tension in the early church where some liked the fact they had these flashy gifts and they gravitated towards those things. It made them more important in the church. It made them more prominent in the church. You know, we get that to some degree when you look at Ananias and Sapphira. You remember what happened with them? They went off and sold some goods and sold a portion of the goods, but then said they sold everything. Why would they do that? Why would they lie about what they sold and what they gave to the church? Make them kind of prominent. Make them look good, you know? I don't remember who it was, if it was Pastor Jim or somebody else that Grace was telling a story one time about passing the plate around in church, and there was always this one woman that would wait until the plates were completely finished, and then just about the time the, the ushers were ready to, you know, put that money together in a basket and take it up front, she would just start waving her money up above her head, like, oh, you forgot me. And wanted, you know, so then people walk, and the people would see her giving it. And it was that way on a regular basis. And again, I don't remember if it was Pastor Jim. It was just a pastor I was listening to. It might have been Jim. might have been another one. But it was rather interesting. Just and hearing him tell the story about how you, it was way over the top. Look at me. Here's my money. And it was every week, you know, that that would happen. Same person. Um, Paul says, that's not to be our attitude. We're to think more sensibly about ourselves. And it comes with the fact of recognizing that God has allotted to each a measure of faith, he says here. And the measure of faith there in verse 3, he's not talking there about one person has more faith than the other. A measure of grace refers to the gifting. A measure of grace is the gift. That's the word actually for gift is the word for grace. And so what Paul's talking about there is God has simply allotted to each one a gift, a measure of faith, a certain portion of a gift, if you will, to be used within the body. Look at the text. It says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of another. So he says, We are all members of one body, but we each have a different function within the body. Many members, different functions. But he says at verse 5, we all make up the body of Christ. We're all individually members of one another. So we've all got gifts. We've all been given a function. We're all to serve the body. No one individual is more important than another. Some of us may have more prominent roles. Teachers are typically that way, you know? Um, it says that God placed teachers in the, body for the, or in the body of Christ for the purpose of teaching, obviously. They get attention because they're up front. doesn't mean they're more important. It simply means they have a different function, different role. In fact, what generally makes a church is not the preaching, but the people within the church. That's where ministry takes place. My job is to simply equip. You guys do the hard, hard work, the heavy lifting. So he says we're each given gifts. Verse 6, he says, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Look at, look at the, some of the things that he says here. Um, those are the gift of prophecy, he said, should prophesy. That refers to prophetic utterance. Something extremely valuable for the first century church, but probably was likely suspended with the finish of the canon. Remember, in Paul's day, scripture was still being produced, meaning God was still speaking through the apostles as prophets. He was still revealing himself. He was also in the process of writing scripture. He was using the Holy Spirit to equip men like Peter and John and Mark, Paul, to write 
his word down. That's this gift. So he says, those who had the gift of prophecy were to continue prophesying. Today I would say that that gift has probably been replaced with preaching. Because rather than um, God moving within us to write more scripture, he simply enables people to interpret and understand it properly and to then preach it. So that's my gut, is that God has replaced this prophecy now with probably biblical preaching. He says those with the gift of service should serve. This refers to those who always seem to look for help. I won't put anybody on the spot today, but there are folks within this church that I am absolutely convinced have this gift. Because they can't help themselves but to help others. And Paul says they should do that. They should serve. He says those who are given with the ability to teach should teach. He says those who have a unique ability to exhort, verse 8, should exhort. That refers to the ability to encourage and comfort others. Um, I've had the unique privilege, I think, in many respects, of coming across guys that I think were, were equipped with this gift, um, where they just have this natural ability to look at someone and to know exactly how to encourage or to um, show compassion for. They just have this innate ability that God has given them that allows them to just know the right word at the right time in the right way. Um, Great example, I had a professor, uh, my Old Testament professor, one of them in seminary, Dr. Fowler. And um, loved him dearly. He's a great, great teacher, Old Testament scholar. Um, But a friend of mine, Um, was dating a young lady and she had come from a background where she had dealt quite a bit with I think depression and some other things and was not finding much help um, at Cedarville and it wasn't because of Cedarville it's just she had seen some counselors and apparently just wasn't quite getting the help that she needed and it began it was impacting their relationship to some degree as they were dating so um, the young man had asked Dr. Fowler if he would meet with him and his girlfriend. And so she came over, for, came over, I think, for the weekend or something and met with Dr. Fowler. And I remember Brian, um, we used to all meet together as a study group, sharing with us just that first appointment alone where she came over as he saw Dr. Fowler engage her in a way that seemed to impact her in a way that nobody else had been able to do. And Brian, this friend of mine, said he actually... Fowler actually wept with her as they were talking. And Brian, the way that he described that, there was this incredible amount of empathy as if Fowler knew exactly what was going on in her mind and her heart and could speak to her in a way that she needed to be spoken to and could provide the biblical counsel that she needed. And uh, my understanding is that they then continued to meet Brian, his girlfriend, and they ended up getting married. Um, But just listening to Brian talk about the dynamic effect that Fowler had on her that nobody else had was a unique gift and ability. I believe that's the gift of exhortation. Knowing exactly what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and who to say it to. And Paul says that they're to continue doing that. They should continue to exhort. He says that those who have been given the special ability to share, this is also in verse 8, should do so liberally. I think that what this gift here is, is that God God equips certain people in the church um, to share in a way that goes above and beyond normal sharing. We're all called to share, are we not? We're supposed to, where we see need, share as best we can. But God equips certain people within the church family with ability and means that allow them to go above and beyond what maybe the average Christian does. I've had the privilege to see that at work as well in the church. 
Um, I love it when I see Christians who um, have been given um, means above others that use that then and do it in a sort of a private, quiet way. God equips them for that, gifts them with that. Um, and in some respects, that ought to be all of our attitudes. You know, when God gives us an abundance, we're to make sure we use it abundance to glorify Him. Um, but God equips certain people in certain ways that allows them to go above and beyond. And He says to do that, and He says, do it liberally here. Do it liberally. Um, he says those with the gift of leadership, verse 8 as well, should lead with diligence. I love that word, diligence. Um, engage it, move forward with it. Um, put your nose to it, if you will. He mentions the gift of mercy also in 8. He says those with the gift of mercy should do it with cheerfulness. And again, I think that refers to those who have a special ability for that. The ability to extend mercy and compassion um, especially when wronged. Um, so he lists these gifts off here. Now, these are not the only gifts. In fact, I don't believe we have a complete list in the scriptures. What we have are examples. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and see a list of gifts there as well. Um, but some, just a sampling here. What's Paul's purpose and point in doing these things? Well, we can't really get lost in the forest here of spiritual gifts and make this really about the spiritual gifts because that's not really what this is about. This is not Paul's treatise on spiritual gifts. Instead, what he's trying to do is he's trying to remind us that in order to live out transformed lives, we have to be transformed in the way that we think. And one of the issues that faced this early church was what was happening within the church. The differences of opinion, and we'll get to that in some of the passages later on where there's some differences of conscience. Some saying, hey, it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and some saying, no, it's not. And it's some that say, hey, you have to observe the Sabbath, and others saying, no, you don't. And so there's this natural tension. And so Paul's trying to address those things. And so he starts with a place like, look, if you're going to live a transformed life, if you want to look like what genuine worship is, then let's start with what happens within the body. Look at who you are and recognize that you have a place within the body that's no important than anybody else. Don't think of yourself as haughty or uppity or more valuable. I've got this great gift and they just have these other little piddly gifts. Or I have this wonderful position in the church and they're just the ones who stack chairs. He says... No, everybody's been given a gift. So take it down a notch and recognize that you're all given gifts and abilities to serve the church family with those gifts and abilities and do it with excellence, do it with diligence. Because that expresses genuine worship then. That's living a transformed life because the world doesn't do that. The the world says, climb the ladder, become the leader, be better than everybody else. And Paul says, no, you're just like everybody else. Serve everybody else. No more important, no less important. Serve the body. And so he simply starts with a practical application for them. I want you to just turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm just going to reiterate this. First Corinthians chapter 12, I'm just going to read down through this. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, 
but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given a measure or a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It means for the good of the body, not for themselves. For one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet as many members, and all the members of the bodies, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if an ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the member, each members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Means he put everybody in just exactly where he intended. But now there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have not need of you. Or again, the head of the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow much more abundant honor and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are... Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets. And this is not ranking. It's simply like a bulleted list. One, two, three, four, five. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts, healings, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No, they are not. Are all prophets? No, they are not. Are all teachers? No, they are not. Are all workers of miracles? No, they are not. Do not have all the gifts of healings, or no, all do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. What's Paul's point there? Basically the same thing he's saying to us today. We're all members of one body. The place that we can start when it comes to living transformed lives is the same place Paul started. Make sure that we think of ourselves sensibly, reasonably, in terms of our place in the body of Christ. To not be proud, not be boastful, but instead look at the body and say, what role do I serve in this body? What gift has God given to me? How do I use that within the body? I'm no more important, no less important in this body. That's transformed thinking. That's the way that a Christian is supposed to think. The world thinks otherwise. And so again, Paul starts there, but what underlies all of this is this idea that the proper response to the gospel is that we become these living, acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. By allowing our minds to be transformed instead of our rest of us being conformed to the ways of the world. So Paul will continue this as again as he talks about loving one another, what genuine love looks like, 
how to bless those who persecute us, how to accept one another with all of our differences and everything else, um, all as we think through responding to the gospel by making ourselves living and acceptable sacrifices.